Have you ever needed reinforcement of something that you had been taught, some lesson that you've sat in, or, or something that is teaching that has been given to you? Me, I was never really good in, at maths in school. To be honest with you, I'm not really good at maths now, but I have a wonderful thing that helps me do mathematical things. It is called my iPad because it has a calculator built into it, and I can do all my maths on that calculator. Anybody not very good at maths here today? So all of you are math geniuses because not a single one of you put your hand up. (laughs) Bill's back there going, yep, math genius. I was not good at maths. I remember one day. It was, I was about nine or ten years old, and, I, and we were in class, and the teacher was teaching away some kind of math problem, probably had something to do with fractions, because, you know, at nine years old, I, I despised fractions, and she's scribbling all over the board, and, I, and, I, and I'm looking at it like, literally, it means nothing to me. I just don't get it. And we'd been in it for days. It seemed like years, really, that she'd been teaching these fractions. And I looked around all the other kids around me. Man, they're, they're writing in their notebook, and they're talking, and they're flying this number over here and dropping this numerator and adding some denominator. And I still don't get the stuff. And, and I'm sitting there just completely exasperated, knowing that it's been taught. It's gone into my head. But I just didn't grasp it. I I didn't get the truth that the teacher was trying to teach me. I'm hearing it, but I'm not understanding it. Next thing I realized a few days later, I found myself in another class going over the same crazy fractions and stuff that she was teaching, but they called it remedial maths. That just means I didn't get it the first time, and they needed to reinforce the teaching and try to get it into my head. Now, fortunately, I figured out later in life I I can do fractions and stuff, and I'm good. But you know what? I wonder if that can be true of us in spiritual lessons as well. You know, the Lord teaches us something, and we, we read it over and over and again. But you know, sometimes God just needs to reinforce and reteach things to us, doesn't he? And you know what? That's exactly what happened to the disciples. Man, they had just experienced and witnessed a most amazing miracle. Thousands of people had come to see Christ. They had heard that he had crossed over to, to a certain area on the Sea of Galilee. And uh, they had heard about his reputation. They had heard uh, about the miracles that he had performed. Maybe even had been Somewhere where they had seen a miracle at some point in time. And so Jesus went off with his disciples to rest and to have some free time with them. But he looked and he saw this multitude of people, thousands of them coming. You know, the Bible says there was 5,000 men, but that didn't include the women and children. And some theologians estimate that it could have been up to 20,000. I don't know. But whether it's 5,000, 10,000, or 20,000, there were a mass amount of people there. And the Lord had performed this wonderful miracle in front of his disciples. But you know what? The fact was, they didn't get it. They didn't understand what happened. And so now, after the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus needed to reinforce something. Jesus needed them to understand the truth of that miracle. 
And before they could further and go on, before they could progress, before he could even move on to anything else, he immediately needed to teach them the truth of that miracle, to reinforce it into their mind. So far, what we've looked at in our study of the signs in the Gospel of John is we've seen Jesus turn water into wine. We've seen him heal the nobleman's son. We've seen him go to the pool of Bethesda right outside of the temple and heal a man that had been there for, what, 38 years or so? And he would wait for some superstitious thing to happen in the water that, that, that he might be able to get healed if he could get into it the first before anybody else did. And we, see, we saw how Jesus healed that man. And then last week, we looked at the feeding of the 5,000. That large crowd gathered late in the day to see him. He asked Philip, Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But you know, Jesus only asked Philip that question to test him or to prove his faith. To pull out of him the truth of who really was going to feed him. Because the Bible says Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do. So what happened? Well, it says there in John 6, verse 9, there was a young boy there who had had five barley loaves, which was poor man's bread, and two small fish. But what are they among so many, one of the other disciples said. And Jesus said, listen, make the people sit down right where they're at, because there's a lot of grass here. So the men sat down in number of about 5,000. And then Jesus took those loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples. And the disciples then distributed those to the people who were sitting down. And then likewise, the word of God says, they took the fish and did the same thing and distributed that to everybody. And the, and the word of God tells us that, that, that there was so much food that everybody ate till they wanted no more. That they were completely and utterly full. And th then... Not only were they full, you know, it wasn't as if they went around and, and said, hey, can I, can I have that scrap that you have because you know, I'm still hungry. There was so much food that the Lord provided through that miracle that they took up 12 baskets of leftovers. And what they did with them, I'm not sure. Some people think each disciple took it home. I, I don't know. It, that's not the point of the story, is it? What was the point of that story? The point and the truth of that story was the fact that Jesus Christ divinely cares for his people. He went up there in the mountain to rest, but he, he disregarded his resting to meet the needs of those people. That Jesus cares for us. That Jesus can supply the very things that we need. That this man, Jesus, from Nazareth, he is such an amazing person. He is so amazing. He's so wonderful. Let's just face it. He's God. And from the very first miracle in Cana of Galilee at the wedding to the one that's taking place now on the Sea of Galilee where he would walk on water, it is to show, it is to show them that he is God in the flesh. And as God in the flesh, he cares for us. He supplies our needs. He gives us divine provision to, to, to be enabled to do that which he's asked us to do. And then, through obedience on our part, that blessings will flow. 
It, it was to show us that Jesus provides. And you do not need to worry, disciples, about how you will be fed or how you will be provided for or how you will be enabled to do this ministry that I am calling you to do. You don't need to worry about your situations because no matter where you are or what's going on, I will care for you. And then that sign ultimately, along with the sign of walking on water, leads us into the dialogue that Jesus will have with those religious people on the other side of the Sea of Galilee when they get there, that he is the bread of life. And so now comes the fifth sign. The fifth sign is really Jesus coming to the rescue of his disciples. It is so much more than him walking on water. It is so much more than Peter walking on water. If we just focus on that aspect of it, we really miss the whole depth of what this sign is about. So let's pick up the fifth sign, and it begins at the end of the feeding of the 5,000. The Bible says, Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, they said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Why did they leave in such a hurry after the sign? You read that sign, it's like, man, Jesus feeds them, and, and what a, a wonderful thing. They should be there celebrating and, and, and really worshiping Jesus Christ for who he is. But, but instead of that, all those people, those thousands of people, that mob that it could have become, they said, you know what, this is the prophet, this is the Messiah, this is the one that's supposed to be our king and free us from the bondage of the Romans and, and kick out everybody. And he, he's the one that is to reign and, 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 and lead us and we will be a people again. And, and Jesus knew that that is not the ultimate reason for which he came. And Jesus knew that he could not allow that to happen. And you know what? He didn't want his followers, to get, his disciples, to get caught up in this emotional swell of, yes, yes, let's make Jesus king. It was not time for him to become king. If he became their king now, he would not be able to accomplish his father's will. He would miss the cross and not fulfill the very first messianic prophecy that is recorded in the Bible, which is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Remember, right after Adam and Eve had sinned and, and, and the Lord had provided a, a sacrifice and clothing for them when they had come to him and repented, Jesus looked at, at Satan, at that serpent, and he said, I am going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, destroy the power that you have. Though you shall bruise his heel, you will wound him, but he will destroy you. If Christ had allowed them to make him king, none of that would have possibly taken place. Jesus didn't come just to be king and to be ruler. Jesus didn't come, and let's face it, just to give you and I a better life. He came to deal with our sins, our sins that separates us from God the Father, our sins that ultimately place us in, in hell for an eternity without a second chance or hope to get out of that place. 
Jesus Christ came to save that which was lost and to pay for their sins. And if he was to be made king then, none of that possibly would have taken place. So he needed to keep his disciples from getting drawn into making Jesus king. So he told them to get into their boat and travel across the sea and that he would meet them a little bit later. It's about 6 to 8 o'clock in the evening when they got into the boat. Even these veteran seamen, it would take three or four hours to go the approximate miles that they were supposed to row. You, you know, the Sea of Galilee isn't that big. It's maybe about four or five miles wide by, by, by about seven, eight, nine miles long. And it would have taken them several, three to four hours to get across. So they left about somewhere between six and eight o'clock in the night. But Jesus didn't go with them. You know why? Not because he didn't care about them. Not because he didn't want to be with them. Because he needed to reinforce the truth that they didn't quite yet grasp. So Jesus stayed on that side of the sea and he went up into the mountainside alone to pray. The evening wore on and they got about three or four miles across the sea. And at that time, which was about 11 o'clock in the evening, a fierce wind, the Bible says, came across over from the mountains into the Sea of Galilee, which was very common. Actually, this is something that would happen often at the Sea of Galilee, and it was known for these crazy uh, uh, winds that would blow through, and it would just wreak havoc with anybody that is on the Sea of Galilee. And this happened at about 11 o'clock. And those disciples continued to row. Matthew 14 tells us that it was about the fourth watch of the night when Jesus actually got up from where he was, walked down the side of the mountain, began to walk across the Sea of Galilee to them. Now, there's a, a commentator named John Gill. Some of you might have heard of him. He's a very ancient commentator, fantastic commentaries. And what he says this, is this about the fourth watch. The first watch of the evening was between six, uh, it began at about six o'clock in the evening. And it lasted until about nine. The second watch then began from nine and went to twelve. The third watch was from midnight to about, about three in the morning. And then the fourth watch, the watch in which the Bible says that Jesus got up from his place and he began to go down the mountain to go across the sea to see them, was the fourth watch of the night. That was between uh, 6 and 9 o'clock. I'm sorry. Between 6, 3 and 6 o'clock in the morning. They have been rowing in that storm since about 11 a.m. 12, 1, 2, 3, minimum four hours toiling in that storm. These veteran seamen rowing and rowing and rowing. And, and I don't, I'm not sure if any of you have ever seen the, the boats in which they went across on the Sea of Galilee. But those of you who went to Israel with us a couple of years ago, uh, it wasn't like that kind of boat where you have like five or six feet above the, the water line to the top of the boat. These boats that they were in were only, you know, there's only a few inches between the, 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 the sea and the top of the boat. So any kind of major wind like that, man, not only were they rowing, not only was the sea, wind probably tearing at their sails, but I can imagine Peter saying, hey, John, get your bucket and 
start throwing a little bit faster. You know, Peter is kind of boisterous and loud. So they're throwing water out of the boat. Water's coming back in the boat. They've been there about four hours rowing. And Jesus is just up on the mountainside praying. And not until about three to six in the morning. Maybe when the light is just starting to come up over the mountains. That Jesus begins his journey to walk across the sea. Why did he wait? You ever thought about that? Was this intentional? Didn't Jesus know? I mean, he's God. He saw, what was it, um, one of the disciples' brothers sitting under a tree. Was it Andrew or something? He saw him sitting under a tree. I mean, how did he not know Because he purposely sent the disciples out into the sea. He could have easily had them up on the mountain praying with them. But they needed to know something about Christ. They needed something in their faith that affirmed and strengthened their faith. For that when Christ was gone and sitting at the right hand of the Father. That they could have some assurances and understanding. To know that this could be done. This ministry, this life no matter what it brings, no matter what storm arises, that this could be done. Not in their power, but something that was far above them. Even though Jesus was up on the mountain praying, they were not without his care. They were not without his watchful eye. They were not without him being involved. Mark 6, verse 48, tells us something very wonderful. It says, Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. If you think about that verse for a while, what an amazing, what amazing things that we can draw from that. He saw them straining at rowing. You know, my thoughts on this, you know, the boys were miles out into the sea. There was a storm whipping across up around them, rain coming in probably, maybe. The wind was blowing. The sea was tossing and turning. You know, they were three, four miles out into the Sea of Galilee. Jesus was up on a mountain back inland somewhat, quite a bit of ways away, maybe four to five miles total in distance, not sure, but good way away at night. I'm sure he couldn't really physically see his disciples. But the Bible says that he saw them straining at rowing. Yes, Jesus saw them. Did he see them physically? Not sure. Did he just see the storm and know that they were in the midst? Or did he see them as God? As the one who he was? Mark says he saw them not just in the midst of the storm, but he saw them straining Man, I, I look at that and I think of my own life and I, and I understand something. That Jesus just doesn't see us here, does he? He sees us straining when we're straining. He sees us as we're living. He sees us what's going on in our life. Though he might be far away and distant from us at moment in a physical kind of sense, there is no separation from his care, from his provision, from his concern, from his love, from his watchfulness over us? Do you remember that it was he who sent them into the storm in the first place? And now they were afraid. Jesus, at the fourth watch of the night, three, four, five, six o'clock in the morning, he comes and he begins to walk. And he's walking on the water. And those wonderful, faithful, brilliant, 
men of God, they cried out and said, no, it's a ghost. Oh, no. Peter, what are we going to do? John, I don't know. The Bible says they were afraid of this apparition that they see on, on, on the sea walking towards them. And then all of a sudden, in the midst of the wailing of the wind and the, 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 the sea raging over the side of the boat, maybe some of the disciples still chucking out water as best they could, through all of that, they hear this voice say, It is I. Don't be afraid. And I love it. John doesn't talk about it. Neither does Mark. But the Gospel of Matthew puts in the story about Peter. Peter walking on the water. And it's at this time when he heard Jesus say, It is I. Don't be afraid. Peter says, Can I come to you? And Jesus says, Come. And then he begins to walk on the water. And, and then all of a sudden, as he got close to Jesus and reached out to grab his hand, he looks all, over, all around him and he begins to take his faith off Christ and he sees the storm and he begins to sink and Jesus just holds him up and brings him back up out of the water you know we like to use that part of this story out of the gospel of Matthew to talk about or to teach us about stepping out by faith take take the initiative and do something for God and you know maybe that's true enough but man there's something so much greater than that that this sign teaches us. It is really the whole purpose of this miracle. It is really the, the reason why Jesus is emphasizing this because it's the same thing that this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 teaches those disciples and teaches us today. And it's summed up in the words that he said to Peter after he pulled Peter up from sinking, he says, Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? Christina's song was a real blessing to me today. I'm sure it was to you. You know why, Christina? Because it's just not your story. That's just not your story. It is the story of every believer in this room. Oh, even when I doubt, God has been faithful. I remember those 11 years that I spent running from God as a Christian and I decided you know what I wanted Jesus in my little bit of a life too and I, I decided not to live wholeheartedly for the Lord and during all that time when I was unfaithful God was always faithful and I look back now hon and I see all the things that God was doing to bring us back to him he never was faithless to me he's always been faithful and he says to Peter, why do you doubt? They get back in the boat. The next thing that we see in the story of John's gospel is that we see that they are in the boat. Now this might be one of the most understated statements in all of the word of God. You know what it says that when Jesus and Peter got back into the boat, or Peter got back into the boat, Jesus got into the boat. You know what the Bible says? It says that they gladly received them. What an understatement. Your boat's sinking. The storm is raging. You don't know if you're going to make it to the other side. And all of a sudden, he's with you. And they said, oh, we're happy about that. What an understatement. I'm sure today if you ask Christina if she's happy that Christ is walking with her and she walking with him, she would say, oh my goodness, I cannot tell you enough 
how the joy, what the joy is that's inside of me. Those of us who know what it is to walk with and without Jesus, you understand what they were so glad that Jesus got in the boat. And then the Bible says the wind ceased, the storm stopped raging, and in Matthew's account, the Bible tells us that then those who were in the boat came and they began to worship Jesus, saying, truly you are the Son of God. Wait a second. Didn't they understand that when Jesus took five loaves of bread and two old fish or two scrawny-looking fish and blessed them and fed up to 10,000 or more people? Didn't they understand that Jesus was the Son of God? He was not some man come to create a religion for us to follow like a sheep. He, he was not something, someone that just wanted praise and, and, and want, was kind of lost his mind and wanted people to worship him. No, he was actually God who came to this world because we were lost and are still lost and we need a Savior. More than a church, more than a religion, more than a denomination, more than things that we do in a religious sense. Jesus came to be the Savior for me and you. And now they saw him because he walked on the water and he got into the boat. And, and the storm ceased. And they said, yes, now. Now we know truly that you are the Son of God. You know what's awesome? John's Gospel tells us immediately the boat was at land. Now, you, you read this story out of Matthew, Mark, or John. And the biggest thing that we sometimes want to think about is, oh, Jesus walked on water and Peter walked on water. Why is this sign here? I mean, there are at least four miracles in what John describes to us here. The four miracles are, one, Jesus walked on the water. Two, Peter walked on the water. Third, Jesus stilled the storm. And fourth, Jesus took that boat from three miles in about the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and he immediately put it onto the shore near Capernaum immediately either this book we call God's word is absolutely rubbish and full of lies or you have to believe exactly what it says that Jesus has power over all things and can walk on water and can equip those to do those other people like Peter to do miraculous things and Jesus has the power over the elements and Jesus has the power over space and time the very same things that the previous four miracles themselves were beginning to show us. And Jesus shows us again by the four miracles that are within this one sign. So why is this sign here? And you're looking at your clock or watching, you're thinking, okay, what's the point of the message? All I'm doing right now is telling you about the miracle. Then I'll give you the four points in a moment. But why is it here? We find the answer in the book of Mark, verse 52. Why is this sign here? Why did Jesus send them across the sea? Why did he go away from them and allow a storm to come? He sent the storm. Why did he come across on the water? Why did he allow Peter to walk on water? Why did he calm the storm in the moment that he went into the boat? Why did he put the boat on the shore of the Sea of Galilee immediately? Why didn't he just tell them to row across? Because of verse 52 in Mark 6. 
they did not understand about the loaves because their heart was hardened. What was it about the loaves that they missed? That Jesus provides. That Jesus is enough. That in your life, Jesus is all sufficient because he is God's son. He is God incarnate. He is the God-man. This is sometimes us, isn't it? That we miss it, that Jesus is not enough. You know, we always want the Lord to pay our bills and provide the food in our life and different things like that. But he goes well beyond all of that stuff. Jesus isn't just come to give you and I a better life. He came to show us that he is the seed to destroy Satan's power over you. You can join a church. You can pray for hours every single day. You can believe that Jesus is God's son. That he died on the cross. That he was buried. That he rose again. And, and, and he's at the right hand of the Father. You can believe that intellectually today. But my question is much more than that. Do you believe that in your very heart and soul? Do you believe that with your life and for your life? There is a difference between believing intellectually and believing because you've come to him and you've repented and you've given Christ your life. You've acknowledged that he is God's way and the only way of having salvation. No priest, no vicar, no pastor, no baptism, no work that you do on your own is ever good enough to, have, to get you to have a relationship with the Heavenly Father. What Jesus was showing the disciples through the feeding of the 5,000 and what Christ was showing the disciples through this, this miracle of the storm on the Sea of Galilee was to show them that Jesus Christ is God who came to save them and that he's all sufficient for their life here and hereafter. Last week I gave you four truths that strengthen our Christian life. Today I want to give you four things for you and I to remember that we should not forget. Four things that you need to remember and never forget. And I'll close with these four things. Number one, you and I can fully rely on Jesus to save us. It's just that simple. You and I can fully rely on Jesus to save us either spirit, both spiritually and in our life today. I'm not one to tell you that you're never going to have problems. And I'm not one to tell you that in every problem that you have, you're always going to come out and have it answered the way you want it. Sometimes you will suffer Sometimes you will lose things in this life. You know, Lisa was pregnant with our, one of our children, and I forget what number it was. I think it was between Jacob and Felicity, and she had a miscarriage. And you would ask yourself, well, why would, a, why would God allow her to get pregnant and then have a miscarriage? I don't know. But I know that he never left us or forsook us. I know that his divine plan is still good, and I know that he still loves us. 
And I know now that years after that, Lisa has been able to comfort many other women in the times that they've miscarried in their life. You know, the Bible says that all things do work together for them that, that love God, for them who are called according to his purpose. And I want to tell you this morning, if you've never accepted Christ, I, I don't mean that you've believed intellectually. I want to know, have you come to him in faith and said, I can't do this? The disciples kept rowing. They couldn't get to the other side. They kept throwing water out of the boat, but it kept getting filled up. It wasn't until Jesus came into their life right there on the Sea of Galilee that they were saved. If you're here this morning, Jesus has come to you. And he stands there and he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you will open up, I will come and dine with you. I will come and be with you. And that, that, all that simply means is this, that all you have to do is come to him by faith and whatever words that you have in your heart, you say to him, I need your salvation and I realize that I cannot do it alone anymore and I need you to forgive me because I have sinned against you and I am sorry. First thing we need to understand is you and I can fully rely on Jesus to save us that's what this sign shows us. Number two, you and I can do anything at his command. Listen, whether it is to step out in faith on the sea like Peter or go into a difficult situation. I wonder, Peter and all those other seamen right there, Jesus is saying to them, go into the boat. I wonder if they had a sense that a storm was coming. They were veterans on the Sea of Galilee. Man, I, I've met people who, you know, my dad spent most of his life outside working. And construction work. And we'd go out to work and he'd say, it's going to rain today. I said, Dad, the sky's gorgeous. How do you know it's going to rain? Sure enough, in the middle of the afternoon, we're up on a roof somewhere and it's chucking down the rain. My dad just knew it because of his, his experience being outside and working the way he worked. I wonder if these seamen knew that this storm might come, and yet they went out on the sea anyway. Folks, I don't know where your situation is, and I don't know what you're going through in life, but I want you to understand you and I can do anything at, at his command. Whether it is to step out faith, or to go into a difficult situation, or to wait on him whilst we are toiling. Remember, they were on the sea for four hours at least. Rowing away, and all they could do is keep going. I love this verse in Isaiah 46. Even to your old age, I am he. And even to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear. Even I will carry, and I will deliver you. You know, there are so, much, so many things in God's word that we can hold to and in strengthen in our faith. Number three. What does this sign show us? It shows us that you and I are to be totally reliant upon Christ. It's funny, I think. The, the older I get, and I'm still quite a young man. I'm 51 years old. Who laughed at that? Calissa. Are you laughing at She has no idea what I'm talking about. Oh, Aiden, we'll have to have a talk. I said I'm not old, and he laughs over there. You know what I've discovered? I have discovered, like the Bible says, you know what? 
When I was young and now I'm old, I have yet to see God forsake the righteous. I'm not perfect, but I am saved and I am God's child. And I have yet to see God forsake me. I forsook him many times, but he has never forsaken me. And I want you to know, when you look at this sign of the walking on the water and the stilling of the storm and the, uh, the, the Peter being able to walk on water and the boat being put to the other side, you can be this morning totally reliant upon Christ. He is your all in all. Everything they needed ultimately was accomplished by Jesus Christ. And then lastly, I want to tell you this. Jesus Christ, like he was for the disciples on the Sea of Galilee, is for us today our constant source of strength for our faith in life and in, 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 in any ministry that he has called you to serve in. Listen, listen, doesn't it get hard to toil at what God has given you to do? Maybe the toiling that you have is to, to, to be in a relationship or in a marriage where you're support, supporting your family all by yourself. Maybe you're in a situation where you long to have a spouse, but you don't have a spouse. And yet it seems that, that maybe God has called you to, to a ministry and being in a life of singleness. And yet sometimes it, you just feel it's days of toiling and days of toiling and days of toiling. Maybe there's a burden that you carry or a physical ailment that you carry. And you just feel like it's been more than four hours, Pastor. Man, I'm still toiling at the sea. I want you to know what Jesus is telling us by this sign. It's not the time. It's not the space. But it is the fact that Christ is our constant source of strength in our faith. It is not your dad or your mom or your pastor or your Sunday school teacher. It is not that great Christian book that you thought that you'd go and buy at the bookstore. It is not that famous uh, uh, theologian that's on the radio that is the source of your strength. It is the man from Nazareth. It's the one that they cried out to say, crucify him, crucify him. It's God who put himself upon the cross to bear not just the shame and the guilt of the people that slung at Adam, but to bear our sins. And when I look at this miracle, I see these four truths. That you and I can fully rely on Jesus. That you and I can do anything at his command. That you and I are to be totally reliant upon him, not anything else. And then lastly, he is our source of strength nothing else. Let's pray.